This installment of the AX Insider podcast features a conversation with Roddy Bogus, Vice President and Aviation Building Service Group Leader for RS&H. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the AX Insider podcast. My name is Andy Telejohn. I'm the senior writer at Airport Experience News. Many of the guests we've had so far over the last few weeks have been taking a look at how the industry is going to recover from the current struggles it's facing due to the COVID-19 pandemic and what airports are going to look like as they evolve over time. Uh, with us today is Roddy Bogus, Aviation Building Service Group Leader with RSNH, an international provider of architecture, engineering, consulting, and planning services for clients uh, that work on aviation infrastructure and other infrastructure projects around the world. Uh, Roddy, you've been keeping an eye on this pretty closely uh, from the get-go. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of, uh, you were a half a year into this now, and uh, what do you see airports uh, changing as a result uh, of the COVID-19 virus, both in the short term, and uh, what do you see of these changes uh, lasting permanently? Well, thanks, Andy, and, and thanks for having me on. I, I hope there's some value in what I have to say here today. You know, the covid six months that's just hard to even fathom but yes it is you know everybody's trying to deal with it and 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 i don't know from from where i sit anyway that i really see a lot changing uh in regards to that i think you know everybody's still trying to figure out what is it that you can do to to assuage the fears of the traveling public and 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 we're seeing a lot of effort in that regard however i'm not sure that the airport is the primary focus uh for on what our prospective passengers fear if they fear something i you know it's good that that everything's clean but in some ways that's kind of window dressing i think because maybe the most scary proposition of flying right now is being in the airplane you know an airport volumetrically is is significantly larger than the airplane and while we can while we can keep it clean for the waiting before and the waiting after it's that period of time where you're in close proximity because airplanes have not changed their shape really. Uh, it's the smallest volume of space that the passenger will probably inhabit no matter how many people are on that aircraft. And, and the airport's just a small piece of that. So I really think uh, the airports are, are doing the best they can, but I think it's a system-wide approach we have to look at to get the passengers comfortable with the act of flying again. And you're seeing the airlines, you know, try to do that. You, you hear the calls from the CEO saying, hey, let's get flying. You've even heard it from the government. But uh, we're not really seeing that just yet. Yeah, true enough. Uh, and I, I'm not expecting that we're going to see aircraft changing their shape anytime soon. That uh, <sighs> That seems to be about as fixed a seat, uh, fixed a situation as you could, as you could possibly see. Uh, is there, is there anything airports can do to maybe help the airlines along with, uh, you know, making, uh, making folks a little more confident about, uh, traveling again? Well, I think, um, I think there's lots of ways and, and, and probably one of the biggest ways is for people to start working a lot more in concert with each other. You know, they, the airports have always been a, a piece of the process and, and, it, and for many passengers, it's a means to an end for when they travel. Uh, passengers will put up with a lot for a low fare to get from A to B and do what they're gonna do there. And this is just a, a part of that journey. Um, 
so what can we do to help make passengers feel more comfortable about flying and, and using our airports? Um, you know, we're seeing today, uh, I'm starting to see a lot more of cleanliness certifications by some of the alphabet groups, but, but I also find myself being skeptical about this because, you know, it, it just seems to be a marketing ploy as best I can tell. You know, it, we're certifying that the cleaning project, the products that the airport is using um, are good products. And we've seen some of that on the airlines as well. But I think for a lot of passengers that have that fear right now, certification that the, that the products are good does not translate into it actually being clean. The certification doesn't say we, you know, every day we're certifying, we're recertifying this airport and it's coming out clean. You know, like when you go to a restaurant and it says, you know, it's A, B, or C uh, by the people that, that examine restaurants. You know, what does it take? Does it take us spacing out our turns in the hold rooms so that after every turn, uh, the hold room is clean before people go back in there and said this hold room was just clean for passengers to feel more comfortable? Does it take... Uh, the airline cleaning their airplane between every flight. And, and, and if they say they do it, will we accept that as passengers or do we need to see cleaning people walking on the, the plane with hazmat suits and, and wipes and foggers for us to feel like it's actually being done? Because while it may be being done between every flight or whatever the periodic time frame is for a lot of people, if you haven't seen it, it hasn't been done. Uh, which makes me wonder is um, is one of the solutions, you know, we see a lot more LED signs, you know, this is gate six and it's going to Chicago and and it's, you know, carrier A. Is part of that signage need to also include, and this hold room was last cleaned at 9.37 a.m. The next cleaning is scheduled for, for 10.05 a.m. You know, I'm starting to see this. I just went through an airport not too long ago that they had some uh, information signs, dynamic signs at the entry to restrooms and saying this restroom has X amount of stalls available uh, based on you know, the current rules. The next restroom is right and left and this restroom was last cleaned at this time. So we're giving people the opportunity to make some decisions based on information. And while a lot of that can be just presentation or, or, or you know, window dressing, a lot of that makes people feel better about their environment. So I still think there's more to do that, that takes people, that takes cost, um, you know, getting people to space out their turns on the gates, uh, the airlines is maybe something that, that the airlines might not want to do. But if it means making people feel more comfortable, then maybe somewhere in the middle of there, there's a balance that the carriers and the, and the airports work together because I don't think our people are avoiding the airports. I think our, our people are, are avoiding the airplanes. Okay. Okay. Uh, interesting. That's uh, uh, certainly, uh, certainly more information uh, is, is always better than less information. Uh, perhaps that's even more true uh, now than ever before. Uh, uh, you talked a, we've talked a little bit about the short term. Uh, what are we going to see out of this that's going to last into the long term? Uh, we're told this is not likely the last pandemic we're going to see. Uh, how can uh, how can airports, you know, work on a longer term level to make sure that uh, you know we learn from COVID nineteen and perhaps avoid the same kind of 
consequences from a virus like this going forward? Well, I think there's two parts to the, your question there. One is, you know, the COVID-19 and how we, how we recover from that. And, and the second is, you know, what comes next? Um, and, and of course, this is just my opinion, which doesn't make it true at all. And, and if you listen to my last name is bogus, you probably would discount everything. But, uh, you know, I was so afraid going into this before we knew what COVID was, you know, the aviation seems to run on cycles. And if you look at over the past, there were cycles of seven or eight years before we'd have a blip, you know, a recession or, or 911 or, or some things that went on. And, and we've got these great graphs that show these blips take us down a little bit, but then we always grow back a lot, a lot more resilient than we were before. We had been well over that typical cycle. And, and it was like, you know, where's, where's the next shoe drop? Yeah, and, and I was thinking, you know, with the, the trade wars we were having and, and being such a globalistic uh, economy that we're in, and, and then, you know, nobody, well, I didn't see COVID or a pandemic coming on. And when this, when this dropped, you know, we didn't just have a blip. Uh, we dropped to like 1957 levels of aviation traffic. So that was, um, you know, that's not like jumping off a cliff with a bungee cord where you bounce back. That's a lot like jumping off the cliff with a rope and there's not much bounce in a rope. And, and my concern has been, what does the bounce look like? You know, we've always been told that if you play the stock market, you know, a long-term, it will always work out for you. But is there a point where that doesn't happen anymore? And, and my question has been, is there a point where aviation doesn't bounce and it looks a little different and it turns a corner? not knowing what that is. We've seen so much change now. We've seen, you know, so many wide bodies get put on the ground, some maybe to never come back. We've seen the A380s, you know, almost go out of existence. So a lot of changes. So, and, and it's happening at a time where we're also, by the way, in the middle of changing who our passengers are. You know, we, we, we've heard about this for a long time. And, and so for so long, the, the workforce and the traveling public has been dominated in a lot of ways by, um, an older group of people, which I'm, I'm, I'm the last part of that, the baby boomers. And right now we have the, the millennials and, and the, the Gen Zers, they're our next group. And there's, there's been a lot of anecdotal conversation that, that this new group of passengers, their values are different and what they look for. And one of the big things we've talked about is what they'll spend money on. And I have millennials or, or Gen Zers that live with me and, and they're the kind of people that, you know, if they can get a flight for $50, they'll put up with a lot of stuff I wouldn't put up with, you know, to get there because it's part, it's a means to an end, as we said earlier. So the other part is, you know, the, the ancillary revenue of concessions in airports, that could be changing because there's a lot of conversation that these new people want experiences and are willing to pay for them, but less so about, um, you know, food and beverage and, and, and retail. So how do you create an experience? And, and maybe the bigger question is, how do you create a great experience that people are willing to pay for it? Because a bad experience is still an experience. Um, and I think a lot of us these days in industry and, and a lot of our airport clients are starting to look and say, okay, we understand this experiential piece, but we don't really understand how to apply it. Uh, so I think there's a change going on there, which we can delve into, you know, for me that that's themed hold rooms you know, or maybe doing away with hold rooms altogether, how to increase dwell time in the U.S. at domestic airports, because, you know, our model is different than foreign airports. You know, is window shopping still a bit, or, or are we in an app ordering process? So I think the millennial effect is one thing that, that 
may change how we recover and our recovery may not be exactly like what we looked at. So, you know, how do we know what tomorrow looks like? One of the things we, we talked about, uh, and I'm just going to go down the road here. So stop me if, if you want to dive. This was my next question anyway, was uh, I, I want to hear, uh, you know, if this is going to be a three to five year recovery and airports uh, are going to uh, have their challenges financially through this uh, upswing and all of these demographic changes are continuing to take place during that time. Uh, uh, tell me more about how that's going to change. Cause uh, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's going to affect concessions layouts. Uh, it's going to affect every piece of the airport journey. So uh, you know, please yeah. just uh, keep going. Well, the, and, and man, the recovery cycle, everything I'm hearing now is saying 23 and some 24, I think it's longer than what everybody hopes for. Uh, what I don't know is, is that a full recovery or do we reach a plateau at 75% and, and, and there's a while before we go up again. And, and I don't think anybody knows and can predict it. It's just like watching the news on TV. It's just somebody's opinion and everybody has one. Uh, but how do I be conservative enough to, to be able to advise clients, you know, in this, in this in-between time we're in? Because we know the time we were in and we really know how to play that time. We don't know what tomorrow will be in post-COVID, and I'm not sure we're in post-COVID, although I don't think we'll know until we look back. Uh, so I think we're in this interstitial time, this in-between time of what was and what will be, and we've got to become comfortable of doing something in this time that's meaningful, uh, as well as preparing for what will come. Otherwise, we're just going to sit here and wait, and we may not help the situation. So. While we've got to look toward tomorrow on the horizon, we still have to be able to function in the here and now. And um, maybe after six months, we're starting to feel like that's happening. And maybe outside our homes, for those of us still working from home, we're starting to see more of that. You know, one of the things that was really big that we were talking about a lot prior to all this was the the TNC aspect, uh, the Ubers and Lyfts, and and uh, you know they were changing the way our land sides were working at the airport and, and, and they were revenue generators for the airport and they almost had to be because we were seeing rental cars and, and parking revenue fall away. And, and let's face it, parking revenue is a huge income for, for most airports. And so the millennials, uh, not the millennials, the TNCs were, were having to make up from that in some of the way the charges were, done, were being done. And we, you know, I've talked about that in the past and some risks to that. But now with COVID, is that still the case? Are we, have we pushed the needle back over to rental cars when you need to rent something because people are more comfortable getting a car, getting in a vehicle with just themselves as opposed to somebody else that they don't know who was in that car in the past. And you could say that about the rental car, but ostensibly the rental car has been clean. And let's face it, we've all been in some TNCs that haven't been cleaned since the 60s. So, uh, you know, is it changing that needle um, back toward rental cars. And I don't know that we know that, but there's been some early indications to say it could be uh, because people feel less safe in that shared environment. And then, you know, we were, there was a lot of conversation at the earlier on before COVID last year, the past couple of years about urban air mobility and, and that Uber Lyft type of thing. And, you know, for the life of me, it seems to have fallen off the map, at least as far as is what I'm hearing about. So is that is it just gone to sleep until the passenger traffic comes back and then it's going to come lurking out of the shadows and be a thing? Or 
has, is that another thing that, you know, what life threw at us has changed our expectations? And I don't know the answer to that, but those are, those are other significant changes that I'm hearing a lot less about, although we're seeing the technology advance. But one of the big things I think that maybe if we're preparing for tomorrow uh, in whether it's future pandemics, shifts in, in demographics and how they use our airport, uh, maybe even if aircraft change, you know, we've seen some more flying wing type of things recently, um, is how do we harness data? Uh, you know, we're, we're in the, we're in the, we're in the period now where we've got a lot of smart capabilities, but we don't know, we're not always smart enough maybe to use that. We've got the ability for smarter buildings, smarter passengers, uh, our aircraft can, can, can talk to the, the terminal wirelessly if, if they need to and interact. And, we, and as we change demographics with, exper with experiential type of uh, environments and millennials and Gen Z or so many of these people do so much from their smart device and data is all part of that. So if we start to share data better then then maybe we create a different environment and we change um, change how we do things, you know, hold rooms or departure lounges and hold rooms maybe is the wrong word because it has a negative connotation of being a place where you get held and nobody wants to be held. But, you know, is there a place that passengers can connect to their air carrier prior to boarding through content management systems? So what I mean by that is whether you're in a gate holding area or you're in a large holding area, uh, many of our carriers today offer in-flight entertainment but you cannot start that until you get on the aircraft. And then if you're on a shorter flight, you're, you sometimes don't get done with your movie before the airplane gets done with you. So can we work with, with our air carriers to bring some of that content into the terminal for passengers on that flight? And they start that movie or, or that video or that news feed or, or that music prior to getting on, they take it with them on the jet bridge and they take it on the plane and same thing when they come off. You know, I, I think there's an opportunity there uh, for the airlines to know more about their passengers before they get on, uh, as well as provide additional service that, that many of our passengers would wanna have. Okay. Do, we, do we deal with more auto boarding systems? You know, we've seen that in, in, in Europe, but we've seen very little of it here, which is the automatic gates. And of course, I'm thinking less touch type of scenarios. Um, and what we typically see here in the U.S. And are we any closer to, quote, the tunnel of truth? Um, you know, total recall on the security checkpoint. You know, we, we heard years and years ago that, that pulling liquids paste out of our bag would only be a short time. And it's been a long time. And, you know, taking our shoes off. There's technology that other people are deploying, but in the U.S., we still don't deploy it. And it seems like we should have advanced past that. And then the final thing I think on that is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, health certificates, health passports, you know, 911 forced the U.S., in my opinion, the aviation industry to really jump into security screening before we were naturally progressing that way. Uh, the world had done a lot more of it than the U.S. had. Uh, the health passport thing seems also to be more of a thing coming from outside the borders of the U.S., and I can't help from wonder if for international travel, we will be forced to adopt that, whether it's something that domestically uh, we have the appetite for. So I'm gonna take a breath. <laughs> well, thanks. You covered a lot of ground there. 
I, I would I would like to uh, touch on your uh, your international observations a little bit, and uh, I know that uh, uh, over the years, uh, in a couple of different uh, uh, positions you've held, you've uh, done a lot of work overseas, and you keep an eye on the uh, international airport scene. They've been dealing with this a little longer than we have here, and I'm I'm wondering what your observations are in terms of are there any best practices that have emerged. Uh, you know, overseas that, uh, you know, that might help folks get, uh, uh, get on track here in the uh, U.S. or anything in, in the international scene that you'd consider adopting here that uh, may not have made it here yet? Well, as you said, I'm, I'm less involved internationally than I once was. <clears throat> I, I do try to stay up on it. Their model, in my opinion, is substantially different from ours. Uh, you know, Prior to COVID, we looked internationally to things that we wished U.S. airports could be. Um, and, you know, we looked at Changi a lot for 40-foot waterfalls and, and, you know, jungles you can walk through and things like that. But and it's great, except that their model of dual time for people to have time to use it is not the same model that we have had here in the U.S. So it is substantially different from ours, or at least it has been. However, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, the, the international airports are just now waking up after a long COVID sleep. Uh, <clears throat> you know, many, many of the international airports are in countries that took national approaches to COVID, which the U.S. did not. So, you know, a lot of them have been shut down. In fact, we're seeing some countries that, you know, we're starting to see a second wave. Uh, so I, I still know many airports that aren't really up and awake yet. Uh, I think they're still wrestling with the same issues that we are. Uh, the only thing that, that and, and I don't have a lot for you here, the only thing that I've seen that, that we're still trying to figure out is, you know, long before COVID, uh, we were seeing airports internationally deploy temperature checks along your uh, disembark, you know, portion of your, of your trip. I remember walking through the international airports where you have the temperature sensors and wondering, you know, am I too hot? I, you know, I don't want to be stopped. And I remember reading stories about how to circumvent being too hot and getting <laughs> caught by a temperature sensor. And, and you know, and, and so that technology is available and you've, you've read and we've talked a lot about that. The big thing over here is nobody really wants to own it. You know, the DHS doesn't want to be a healthcare provider and maybe have to deal with HIPAA rules in addition to, you know, privacy for the data they already have. Um, so, you know, where does that go in? Does it create another, another level of infrastructure? Uh, nobody seems to want to put, it's a great idea to put these into play. And, and my hope would be that like after 911, where we really beefed up our security, you know, it's also a natural place to do health checks. And I've often said tongue in cheek, you know, our national health policy could also be, you know, when you, when you go through the security checkpoint, you, you, instead of putting your bag on the x-ray, you just lay on it and you get your, your MRIs, you go through there and then somebody says, you know, cough, turn your head and cough, and then you get your results on the flight and, and then you're good for a year. But uh, um, personally, I, I know that's tongue in cheek and I don't, I don't have a lot more other than, than I don't think I'm seeing personally anything that they're doing that we're not already talking about. Okay, this, uh, keeping in mind that this, uh, the, we're speaking with uh, Roddy Bogus, the Aviation Building Service Group leader with RSNH, uh, who uh, early on in the uh, COVID pandemic did uh, recommend also tongue in cheek, perhaps putting electric, uh, 
uh, electric fence type uh, setups in the walls of airports to uh, to uh, prevent folks from uh, touching walls and perhaps passing the virus that way. Uh, so. Um, I, I, Thanks I just, for sharing I, that. I, I did have to work that in there. I got a kick out of that as I was uh, as I was researching this. Uh, I'd like to just uh, touch a little bit more, Roddy, on the um, on the implications for airports in the in the concessions programs. Our our readers are are largely concessions uh, as these as this does move to uh, over these next couple of years of recovery as as this does move to a, a millennial population growing in po purchasing power and baby boomers uh, probably not stopping traveling and the like but uh, you know the millennials we've heard for a long time are only growing in importance uh, at airports uh, how does this change a concessions layout you you touched on the fact that you know the, the food and beverage might not be as important uh, uh, they might not be looking to necessarily buy a lot of fancy products uh, do you have a sense or a feel for what uh, uh, you know, airports have been building big food and beverage and retail programs for a number of years. How is that going to have to evolve uh, in the next few years uh, during this recovery time? I think the jury's, I think the jury's still out on that. You know, okay. my opinion is an opinion of a, of a baby boomer that's, you know, the tail end of the baby boomers. Uh, but from what I've seen and, and, and what I believe will happen is we're going to have to have a much better mix. And I, you know, I don't know that that looks like an automat type of thing. I, I've seen some of those options and I, I don't think they've, they've done very well. Um, but let's talk about, you know, the typical journey we talk about a passenger going to the airport. You know, it, you know, the first thing is how long is it going to take me to get through security? The second thing is where's my gate and is it still my gate? And, and uh, so I'm comfortable with where I'm going and, and what I'm doing. And then, you know, time permitting, everything else happens. And, and we've, we've spent a lot of time, especially in major international airports, of, of trying to put 100% footfall through big concession areas. But my, my question, uh, which is a question more than an answer, is in this COVID time, for people that, that are fearful of, of things being handled by other people, how many are still going to go through our news and guest stores and want to pick up something that's been handled by who knows how many people, maybe no one, but again, they don't know that. Uh, how many people, you know, are, are going to go into restaurants and do what they used to do? Now, I've, I've flown three or four times so far in the COVID process, and I see some things open, some not. It doesn't, it, I can't help but wonder if there's going to be much more comfort that if I'm, if I go and sit in my, in my seat in the departure lounge, and I go, oh, my earbuds just broke, or I forgot my earbuds. So I go online to the airport online service, and I order some earbuds, and I go, you know, I, I'd like to have a hamburger and some fries. And I order all that, and it's made, and it's brought to me. Um, and that way, I'm not in there interacting with a lot of other people. Uh, you know, it feels to me like maybe only one person's dealt with this, and so I don't necessarily know how the sausage is being made, but I feel like the sausage is clean. Uh, and it comes to me at my gate. Uh, I think we'll we'll see more of a mix of that. I don't I don't pretend to think that we're going to do away with all concessions, but I think there's going to have to be a, a greater mix. Plus, it, it gives the opportunity to to get a wider variety than maybe just the immediate area of where the passenger may be sitting. The other piece of this, which is somewhat of an antithesis to that, is if we 
if we go away from uh, defined gate departure lounges and, and pull back into maybe more of a, uh, a large call to gate hold room type of system, and maybe it's not really called a gate as much as it is just a, a, a large hold room that serves many, many gates. Um, we have the technology to, to have a virtual gate on our smart devices as well. So that does free up passengers that are comfortable with it to, to be at the Irish bar and still be able to keep track of what's going on with their gate, what the announcements are and be more comfortable with that. So I think we're going to reach a point where, where what we've done now and, and what needs to happen uh, will have to come in and merge and, and create a new normal. I think we're seeing some of it already uh, in some places, uh, but I, I feel like there's more to come. And, you know, the big conversation about the um, experiential content is, you know, can you create a concession, an experience concession, whether it's a restaurant uh, you know, uh, a golfing type of thing, a simulation event that that is unique to the airport you're in. For many years, we've, even with the shopping scenario, we said, well, people will come to the airport to shop. Well, for all practical purposes, that's never really happened unless you're going to go fly. So can we create something that says, hey, Andy, you and I are going to fly out of DFW today. Let's go a couple hours early because there's a restaurant that only exists there or there's an experience that's a restaurant and you know we can eat on the putting green. Uh, there, there's something that we can only do at DFW that I look forward to doing. So let's go a little earlier. Let's increase our dwell time to go have, quote, this experience that we only can have there. Uh, because I believe the outbound experience is where we're gonna make our money and not the return because people wanna go home. If we can take that and, and find ways to increase that dwell time, not just because of security, then we have the opportunity to leverage more you know, money out of our passenger's wallet or more electronic transactions. Does that make sense? So I'm still going to be able to uh, get through security and, and sit down uh, and find myself the, the nice bar at the airport. It just might be at a, it, I might be sitting on a putting green instead of on a, a bar stool. Or you're sitting outside looking over an infinity pool that washes out onto the apron where the aircraft sit. You know, if you're in the right region to be outside. I think there are things that we can do uh, that we're just now starting to think about as, as designers of, 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 of good facilities, but also, you know, looking at the operational component of airports that we can, we can entice people to, to maybe come a little earlier. Okay. Uh, I, I'm curious about the, the time frame on all of this because, uh, I mean, it, it, what you're describing sounds like a, a, a really nice experience, but we're going through a situation right now in this country. The American infrastructure, airport infrastructure is aging, has been for a while, it's been retrofitted a number of times. You mentioned the security uh, enhancements uh, after 9-11. Uh, New Orleans and Salt Lake just uh, brought new airport yeah. uh, terminals online. Kansas City is in the process. Uh, are we going to see more of that? Uh, and how are we going to pull that off? Because uh, these next three, five years, as we've been talking about, might be a little rough. So uh, 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 financially and, and travel-wise. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on uh, whether we might uh, spur, whether this might spur some new developments. 
Well, as an architect, let me talk about the, the new terminal aspect first. You know, New Orleans just opened a, a very beautiful facility. Uh, you know, if you've been reading the, the press recently, Salt Lake is, is doing theirs. It looks fantastic. Many years in the making on both of these. And, uh, and, and Kansas City, of course, is in the middle of theirs, and, and, and they've had their struggles on that. But from where we sit right now, I'm not betting on seeing a whole lot of that at the moment if it's not already in the works. Because with some exceptions, most of this, it was based on capacity needs and projected capacity. And, you know, the big red mushroom pause button has been hit because we dropped so much capacity. And now there's, you know, there, there's very few people flying. So our funding is based a lot on user fees and we don't have that many users. So our user fees are down, you know, Congress can put some fees on hold or reallocate them to general funds. So, you know, our, our fee structure is very difficult to support a lot of things right now, other than the state of good repair, because we all know potholes and high-speed landings aren't good, good mixes. Um, so I think there's gonna be some, uh, some caution on big capital projects like that. There is certainly a need for a lot of rehab. But until people can get some sort of comfort feeling on capacity and I think working with the FAA on accurate projections of what capacity may be, it's going to be hard to get the funding we need to do that. And, uh, and that leads to the conversation of, well, then what are we going to do for funding? And, you know, one of the first questions that get asked almost in every project, especially the ones that are still going today is, okay, we only have this much. How do we get more? You know, if the passengers don't come back in the way we want them to or the way we think they will or the way it was, you know, as I said earlier, what if it levels out at 75% of previous for a while? And, um, you know, do we have, will we finally see a, maybe a, a push to change airport funding? And if so, what will that be? I mean, think about the gasoline tax and how many years now the gasoline tax has not really been enough to do much for our highway system. Are we reaching that point? in aviation. So will we see more of a push to what we see overseas in privatization? I don't, we haven't heard that conversation yet. I don't know. The government's been resistant to the, you know, the airports are nice political toys. Uh, will there be some different user fees in the past? And I think you, uh, you and I had this conversation before about, uh, you know, toll roads in the airports and, and using that. But again, that's based on people coming in. So if there's fewer coming in, does that really work? Or are we just going to see higher fees that get charged to the air carriers, which are going to equate to higher fares for passengers, and that creates a spiral? Um, and and I, I don't have an answer for that. I think everybody's looking at that, um, but I don't know that anybody knows this. And I think everybody's winging a prayer, so to speak, is that capacity will come back at uh, a great to a greater extent of where we were 2019 sooner rather than later. Roddy, I don't know if that answered your question. Yes, uh, it answered uh, both the question that I asked and the question that I was going to follow up. With. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you're, it's like you're reading my mind. Roddy Bogus, uh, the Aviation Building Service Group leader with RSNH. I think you've uh, hit on uh, the questions I came with and then some. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add that uh, we haven't hit on yet? Well, let me just, uh, there's one thing that I just would like people to think about maybe, and that is, you know, we've been in a global society, uh, you know, political, economic, but it seems that we have started to see 
visions of pulling back to more regionalism, uh, not only politically and from an economy point of view, but with COVID, and, and just think about some of the articles we've read about people living the, leaving the major cities after six months of this and, and working through you know, video, you know, some people may never go back into the office the way it has been before. So if they're moving into regions outside of our, our major metropolitan areas, my question is, will we see more of a resurgence or growth in our secondary airports? Will we see more traffic to those because the people that need to travel, and, and I don't believe, you know, all this video conferencing will do away with all travel. Um, will we see more flights out of regional airports as opposed to just super hubs? And, and I think that's something to watch. The jury's still out. We're trying to watch where, where the air carriers are, are, are saying their new schedules are, and there's a lot of exper you know, experimenting going on there. But I think it's something that could be good news for some of these airports that years ago had a lot more and have fallen by the wayside, but there may be greater opportunities as smaller communities uh, benefit from uh, the outflow from large urban centers. That could be a significant change uh, in the in the years ahead. That's uh, uh, an interesting uh, an interesting nugget, and I'll want to follow up with you more on that uh, down the line to see if that uh, plays out a little bit. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? Last thing is, you know, we talk a lot about sustainability and resiliency. Um, sustainability has been there for a long time. It seems to be more of a of a bumper sticker and and I don't believe that that we in the industry do it the justice that people that that want it really want it and you know we've been pushed by by the overseas market sustainability but I think resiliency is something we've got to we've got to target and and this pandemic is a great example of that because you know how resilient are we post pandemic uh, I think we've got to spend some time there because you know no matter where you stand on climate change um, we are seeing, you know, rising seawater and things like that. So we know some airports and uh, have problems with that. We're seeing more hundred year events become <laughs> super frequent. Uh, so we've got to be able to deal with that. We've got to be able to deal with pandemics and, and how we respond to that. But resiliency talks to the change in our passenger demographics. What happens when that changes, uh, changes in the air carriers? Will it, will it, you know, six, 12 months from now, will, will the air carrier envir environment look the same in the US as it does right now. We're seeing changes in Europe. There's a lot of people that will speculate we'll see some changes here. Uh, so I think we've got to get serious on resiliency. And, and part of that may be dealing with the use of data in the way we do our business and maybe even more importantly, digital twinning to where we create uh, a real time, a digital model of how our airports are working from a facility standpoint, but even the passengers through beacons and all that technology. So it is, it gives you a, an ex a, a virtual example of what actually is going in in your facility right now. So if you want to plan the next pandemic or just speculate, you can run what if models on there without changing what's going on in your terminal. If you want to say what happens if, if we change our concession program, you can run what if models. You know, what happens if, if, if we lose an air carrier and we have to move gates around? It gives us so much more opportunities with real-time data and not just architectural and engineering space planning and IATA and ICAO, you know, guidelines. And uh, I think that's where we're headed over the next five or so years in my side of the house. 
And we'll uh, we'll be checking back from time to time to hear more. I'm uh, really looking forward to to uh, uh, keeping up with you on some of these changes you're talking about here. Uh, Roddy Bogus, uh, Aviation Building Service Group Leader with RSNH. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you, Andy.